Hi folks, this is Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. Times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is November the 28th, 2018. This is episode 2334 of the Survival Podcast. It is a Wednesday. That means it's interview day. And I have a rare exception interview today. This is... uh. I would say, you know, maybe two or three times a year at the most over 10 years do we have an interview like today. And it's not about the subject. Uh, it's not even directly about the guest. It's about how the guest ends up on the show. Um, I have always tried to make this show about this community. So I generally don't go out and try to get someone to come on the show. Um, that probably over time is not the best decision as a marketer. I mean, if I go out and get big names on the show, then there are people listening, the audience goes faster. But I've always tried to make this, this show about us. So I find that the best guests are people that at least are aware of what we're doing. They care about what they're, we're doing. They want to be part of what we're doing. And when they come ask to be on the show, you know, It's not, well, because we get listened to by a couple hundred thousand people today. It's because I want to, I want to give something. So I, I've made it a, a, a kind of a, a thing where I don't really ask people to be on the show. I even have people that, you know, our friends, they've been on the show before, and they're like, yeah, I really should come back on the show. So I'm like, fill out the form. Fill out the form. I'm, I'm not going to ask you. Like, when you want to be on the air, when you feel you have something to say, you fill out the form, and then Dorothy will book you on the show. And that's how I would say about 95% of people end up on the air, including second and third visits. It's not like, hey, you ain't been on a while, come on back. It doesn't work that way. I have no problem keeping the show booked, so I try to work with people that want to be on the air. Today's guest is named Brian Jacobs, and he's part of a group called Vets to Success. He's one of the exceptions to that rule. Uh, I met Brian very recently in San Antonio. I went down to be a judge in the Veterans uh, Alcoholic Beverage Competition, and all of the judges were veteran entrepreneurs. I met some amazing people, uh, none any more amazing, though, than Brian. Brian founded Vets to Success after losing his brother to suicide, and his, his brother was a veteran as well. That was in 2014. What he's built in four years is phenomenal. It's, it's a massive organization doing good things all over the place, mostly in Florida right now, but expanding rapidly. Um, what they do is they help veterans to rehabilitate their own communities through food and beverage programs, cooking, microbrewing, stuff like that. They give these guys the skills, help them get into positions of employment, and then help them to keep helping other veterans that way. Um, this is really awesome. We've had people on to talk about programs for vets before, specifically things like you know teaching vets to farm. And that's great. And I, I, you know, I'm glad people are doing that. But the reality is today, if your skill set is farming – It's, it's a very entrepreneurial thing. There's, you know, to make a good living, it's, there's not a lot of jobs as an employee. 
You can't just show up in like Atlanta or Chicago or Dallas or Tallahassee and say, I have, I know how to farm. I'm looking for a job and, and get into a reasonable paying job. One of the brilliant things here that Brian's doing, whether these people work directly with the, the, the establishments that he helps set up or decide to go elsewhere, once you have these skills, you're employable. You're employable just about in any significant market in the United States or, frankly, in the world. And that gives these guys an anchor. And even if it's not what they want to do for the rest of their lives, they have something that they can depend on that they can pay their bills with. And more importantly, and we're going to talk about this today when I get Brian on, they have a sense of purpose somewhere to go, something to do. Transitioning from being a military service person to a civilian is difficult. And it's not just for people that have been in combat. Uh, I'm going to talk to Brian about this and get his thoughts, but, but my personal opinion is people that spend the majority and specifically the last part of their time overseas, regardless of combat or no combat, generally I, I would expect to have more difficulty readjusting. You do two, three, or four years in a foreign duty station, especially if you're not married, you don't have family there with you. You're 100% surrounded by military people all the time. It's not like going, you know, if you go to Fort Bragg or something like that, you go off base, you're in America. You're surrounded by Americans. You have friends that are, you know, you have people you interact with on a daily basis that are not military. Um, when you spend, you know, for me, it was two years in, in, in Panama, six months in Honduras, and then coming back to the United States, it was very difficult to be surrounded by disorder. Just the disorder alone. Go to the grocery store and people don't know how to stand in a line right. I know this sounds ridiculous, but you haven't lived that way. And it, it, it takes a while. And having, you get up every day, you have a position, you have a job, you have a mission. The people around you are concerned about that mission. They want to get that thing done, whatever it is. And now nobody really cares. And I don't really have anything to do. I have this part-time job that sucks. So for me, I took a walk. I took a long walk, I won't go into it much today on the intro, but I, I walked from Pennsylvania to New Hampshire. And uh, it gave me kind of a centering, and I came down here to Texas, and I started building my career. And for a lot of vets, they find something on their own, and they go do that. For others, you know, maybe it's just that one bit of good luck you have when you meet somebody that offers you a job. They don't get that, and it begins a spiral. And somewhere around 20 veterans a day choose to end their lives. And it's time that we do something about it. And what Brian is doing is something, something significant. And I really look forward to having him on to talk to you guys about that in just a moment. Before we do, though, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day number one today is the Original Survival Podcast sponsor, Safe Castle Royal. I call them the original sponsor simply because they were the first sponsor. We'd been doing the show for about six months when I finally said, yeah, you know, there's enough going on here. It was like eight months because it's like February of 2009. Um, there's enough going on now that, yeah, I'm comfortable taking you on as a sponsor. So I, I worked with Vic Rontala. We set up the sponsorship program. We brought them on. They're still here. That means this February, you know, we just had our 10-year anniversary as a show in June. This February, Safe Castle will have sponsored this show for 10 years. Years, 10 years they've helped support the show you listen to every day. 
Um, they have everything you need from the practical to the tactical, guns to gardens, and everything in between. You can find it all at safecastle.com, and they will give you a free lifetime discount membership if you're an MSB member. Just check the benefits section of the MSB to learn more. Next up today, harvesteating.com. We're going to talk about cooking today, right? I mean, it's one of the things we're going to talk about, specifically for veterans, but you know, the guy that's been talking to you guys about how to cook great food now, other than me, because I love to cook too, uh, for about eight years in our relationship with him, is Chef Keith Snow at harvesteating.com. Great blog, great products, great seasoning mixes, uh, all kinds of great stuff you'll find over at harvesting.com. Great educational products, too, like the Paleo Beef Course and Food Storage Feast. You can learn all about Chef Keith and all the stuff that he offers you over at harvesting.com. Before we bring uh, Brian on, and uh, I want you to understand there's no, no parity here between cooking and, and, and the person we're going to talk about today in the Day in History segment at all intended. I just found like the extended story sort of interesting. And I'm going to give you a name here in a second that almost everybody in America will recognize, even people that maybe weren't really around uh, when he died in prison. Jeffrey Dahmer. 1994, on this day, November 28th, Jeffrey Dahmer was murdered in prison. But there's more to the story here than I think people realize. Serial killer Jeffrey Dahmer was serving 15 consecutive life sentences for the brutal murders of 15 men. He's beaten to death by fellow inmate while performing cleaning duty in a bathroom in Columbia Correctional Institute Gymnasium in Portage, uh, Wisconsin. During a 13-year period, Dahmer, who lived primarily in the Midwest, murdered at least 17 men. Most of these men were young, gay African Americans who Dahmer lured back to his home, promising to pay them money to pose nude for photographs. Dahmer would then drug and strangle them to death, generally mutilating and occasionally cannibalizing them. Dahmer was finally arrested on July 22, 91, and entered a plea of guilty, but insane in 15 of the 17 murders he confessed to committing. In February 92, the jury found him sane in each murder, and he was sentenced to 15 consecutive life sentences. Two years later, Dahmer was killed at the age of 34 by fellow inmate Christopher Scarver, who also fatally beat the third man on their work detail, inmate Jesse Anderson. Scarver's motive in killing the two men is not entirely clear, However, in his subsequent criminal trial, he maintained that God told him to kill Dahmer and the other inmate, Scarver, already serving a life term for murder, was sentenced to additional life terms and transferred to a federal prison. Now, most of you probably knew he was beaten to death. I had always heard he was beaten to death with a mop handle. But what he was actually beaten to death was a 20-inch long metal bar uh, from exercise equipment. That kind of makes me think, you know, when you do the inclined uh, and flat weight bench that little bar that goes there, that's probably what it was that's about the you know most you, you know in 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 prisons they generally do free weights and stuff like that is what was available uh so i i would guess that would it be but i i, I got the thing about like it i didn't know there were two i didn't know there were two beaten to death you know um and then i was wondering well who is this guy that killed Dahmer? because i don't think anybody's crying that jeffrey Dahmer's gone this Christopher Scarver guy. Uh, Scarver actually worked for the Wisconsin Conservation Corps in a training program. Who was uh, He was working in an apprenticeship. He was supposed to get a full-time job. His supervisor uh, ended up fired, left, whatever. And the next guy that took over said, I couldn't, couldn't get him a full-time job at the end of his, his apprenticeship. And instead of going out looking for a job, he goes to him with a gun Demands money from the guy, gives him the money he has, which is 15 bucks, and he shoots him in the head. Then he, he holds up another guy, 
um, named Fan, who was with him, and says, you better give me some more money, Mr. Hitler. I need more money. That's his words, Mr. Hitler. And that guy eventually like throws like a $3,000 check at him that's probably worthless to him and hauls ass. But he shoots the guy he already shot in the head two more times. Of course, the guy dies. So he ends up in prison, and he's the guy that ends up beating Jeffrey Dahmer to death. He's now in prison with two additional life sentences. He already had had one. His first was a life sentence with no chance for parole for 60 years. So he was doing a minimum 60 years, and at his age, he probably would have been dead by then anyway. Um, maybe not, but, you know, living 60 years in federal prison, not easy to do. Um, so he's now in a federal prison. He's been remanded there. Um, so who was the guy that got killed with Dahmer? Because this is just a guy just standing there. You know, you know I, I was like, well, maybe this guy, like, so he was, he was already serving a life sentence, For killing his wife. Um, he and his wife went to a movie and a dinner at TGI Friday's outside of the Northridge Mall in northeast Milwaukee. After dinner, Jesse stabbed his, stabbed his wife Barbara five times in the face and head, then stabbed himself four times in the chest, though most of his wounds were superficial. Barbara went into a coma and died from her wounds two days later. Anderson blamed two African-American men for attacking him and his wife. He presented the police with L.A. Clippers basketball cap. He claimed to have knocked off the head of one of his assistants. When details of the crime were made public, a university student told the police Anderson had purchased the hat from him a few days earlier. According to employees at the military surplus store, the red-handled fishing knife that was used to murder Barbara was sold to Anderson a few weeks earlier. Police stated the store was the only one in Milwaukee that sold that type of knife. So not exactly a pillar of the community either. Um, why exactly Scarver killed him other than the guy's a murderer and he was there too is not really clear. Scarver, the guy that killed Dahmer and uh, this other guy, uh, Jesse Anderson, stated that one of the reasons he killed Dahmer was that Dahmer would taunt other inmates with his food. He would take his prison food and make it shaped like little humans or arms or legs and then drizzle ketchup over it and eat it in front of them. Yeah. Um, this is one of those situations where even when you dig into it and you look for like, well, maybe this guy, or like, no, this, you know, you're talking killers amongst killers killing each other. And then their punishment is, well, you're going to stay in prison for life, which you were already going to do. Yeah. Just another reason to make sure you stay your ass out of federal prison, I guess. Uh, with that, uh, let me remind you real quick, guys, you can help support this show. By joining the Survival Podcast MSB. That's the Member Support Brigade. And I'm just going to say this. Um, if you're not on my email list, you probably want to join today. I don't know if it'll help you to join tomorrow. I'm just saying. If you're not a member yet and you want to know something that might be beneficial to you, you might want to be on the email list today. All right. So, with that... Uh, let's go ahead and get into a much better subject than Jeffrey Dahmer. I'd like to bring our special guest on now, Mr. Brian Jacobs of Vets to Success. In, in other things he's done as well, we might talk about today. Uh, this is just one of his many accomplishments. Um, I am so happy to see somebody with a legitimate program that is helping getting our homeless veterans off the street into excellent lines of careers 
and helping make them successful, not just as employees, but leading them down, if they want to take it, entrepreneurial paths as well. And with that, hey, Brian, man, welcome to the Survival Podcast. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to have have you on. I've, I've kind of given a summary of what you're all about in the intro today, told people how I met you down in San Antonio, how impressed I was with the work you were doing. And we're here to talk today about uh, your organization, Vets to Success, and the great work you're doing helping veterans trans, uh, transition after coming out of military service and in many instances dealing with some very hard times. But can we just for a minute, Brian, go a little further back? Let's go back to like, I don't know, you're spacing out in study hall in your senior year of high school and trying to figure out what to do with your life. How does that lead you to your choice to join the military and some of the things you're doing now? Oh, man, <laughs> it's actually a, a kind of a funny story. I mean, I grew up in a military family, and um, I was a Navy brat. My dad was a Navy SEAL for a few years um, and then ended up becoming a master arms and And, you know, I was that moving every three years, going to new school. I was like 14 years old. Um, and to be honest with you, you know, just watching my father, um, I really didn't think about it being anything else but in the military. Um, not only that, but every one of my uncles, my, both my grandfathers, every male in my family has served um, in the military. So it wasn't something that uh, there was no other vision. There was nobody who went to college. Nobody went to school. It was, you know. Go and serve your country, do 20 years, and then, you know, come out and, you know, have a plan, I hope, and uh, be something. You know, one of my greatest, um, I guess you can say life mentors was my grandfather who just um, – and I don't know how I got chosen for this, but, uh, you know, eight, at eight years old, um, it was like, you want to help me in the kitchen? And I said, sure, well, you know, of course. Um, little did I know that, you know, that first lesson of life was setting me up for the rest of my life. And, uh, you know, I was like other kids. I was out in the woods playing uh, war, you know, pretending my, my uh, stick gun was an M16. And I was, you know, at that time, the only enemy you see on TV is the, you know, the Viet Cong. And so I was, you know, we're playing Vietnam War in the woods and taking prisoners and You know, my sister became a prisoner of war, got tied to a tree, you know, <laughs> um, um, not to mention, you know, you can make booby traps, and lean twos and um, you just uh, everything you see. Um, you know, I wasn't that kid that was, uh, you know, always watching cartoons. I mean, I was drawing and painting and hunting and fishing and growing food and foraging. I mean, I was just this different kid, I guess. And uh You know, but I mean, I'm not gonna lie to you. I also was probably a pretty big hardhead too, because I found myself digging ditches and uh, digging holes for no reason. My father always found something interesting to do as a punishment. So, <laughs> I guess uh, you know, being a seal, you uh, you, you get strong, uh, and he makes sure his kids were stronger. I'm not gonna lie to you. I was in shape for football always. So, uh, but yeah, I you know, it was just something about this whole. Um, this military thing, and I remember actually we had a, a day. It was in, it was in history class, and everybody had to talk about what they wanted to be in the world. And I, I, I think it was 15. And I said I wanted to be an F-14 fighter pilot. Um, I wanted to be a naval aviator, and uh, it was just something about having that type of uh, I don't know. It was just something amazing about serving the country and that that realm of service. And, uh, you know, I, I little did I know that you had to have a college education and had to be, 
all these other things to be part of uh, the Naval Aviators. Uh, so, you know, when I went to join, um, I did pretty well on the ASVAB, but, but I had no clue what an ASVAB was. And, um, <laughs> and I tried to join the Air Force at that, but he was out to lunch for like, I don't know, three days. And so it was just like, finally this Navy guy pops out of the blue and goes, hey, what are you doing? I'm like, I can't talk to you. I was, I was told to, you know, join the, join the Air Force. And, uh, you know, it was actually my grandfather's dying wish. Um, being the firstborn grandson is kind of a touching piece here. Um, he always used to say, just go into the military, get your life together. And because school was not going to be an option uh, in my life. And it wasn't because I wasn't educated. It was because they didn't have the money to um, send us to school. And when I went to school in North Carolina, it's a very rural school. Um, that, and I hate to say that nobody really paid attention to. Uh, and, uh, it was just like we existed because we had people in the school, really. Sure. Uh, I don't know if I've, I felt like, I don't know, I was like 17, I was number 17 in the graduating class of 122 kids. Okay. Um, and it's, and it's just not enough to be considered, I guess. But, um, we were the school that all the big schools played to get money so we can get money. So we were like the, we actually go hire bullies to beat us up is what I told people in football. Um, <laughs> so I played Ironman football was an understatement. Um, I played, I was a, I was the, I was the quarterback. I was a linebacker. I was the, the kicker. Um, and I played receiver. Uh, I was like a blocker or a special teams for receiving. So, um, I don't, I don't know if I ever came off the field, which was kind of amazing if I think about it now. But anyways, uh, so anyways, uh, grand, my granddaddy, you know, basically said, you know, my dying wish is to see you graduate high school, that my time on earth is done. And this gentleman was a World War II chef, uh, served, uh, survived Pearl Harbor. Um, and, uh, just uh just an amazing role model and uh he uh he did it he died seven days exactly after i graduated high school um i don't know how he did that um but he figured it out and uh i just knew in my heart that you know this man had meant been so much to me that i owed you know there had to be a purpose behind what he was saying he had never steered me wrong um he had never really uh told me anything untrue and just loved me unconditionally um, you know, I spent a lot of time with him um, due to a living situation with my father. Um, we didn't really have a great relationship um, when I was younger. You know, my dad being a SEAL, he was gone a lot. And, uh, you know, when he and my mom found out that I existed, um, it was a very short time period that they had been together. And, you know, we all know Mother Nature is when you do, do the thing, you can create a thing. And uh, it doesn't matter how many times you do it, it just happens, right? Yeah. So um, there was a little bit of uh, some issues growing up. My father really didn't really under, you know, accept me as his child. And so that's why I came to really live with my grandfather and, uh, you know, became who I became through that mentoring. Uh, and now my father's a you know great part of my life. Uh, he's a great person, um, super supportive, um, you know, probably has a little bit of guilt. Um, with, uh, you know, those things, but, you know, we all grow and we, we forgive and forget, and that's the way you do it. Absolutely. It's too much to go in today, but I'll tell you, we have an awful lot of similarities in our background. Um, kind of moving forward with our topic though. So you joined the military. Can you talk to us like, how long did you spend? What was it like getting out and, and what, 
what was the turning point that led you to where you founded Vets to Success? Right. You know, to be honest with you, it was kind of a weird piece. When I went to the military, uh, like I said, I tried to join the Air Force, and this Navy recruiter got me. Um, and I scored pretty well on the ASVAB. I scored high enough to be selected for two different jobs, one with a nuke tech, um, and the other was a Navy corpsman. And what sold me on the Navy corpsman was um, a, a simple phrase of hot young doctors and nurses running around in hospitals. Hmm. Um, I was like, sold. I'm a young guy. This sounds like the winning deal for me. Um, but there's this little for the bottom of the uh, page that said FMF. And I asked about it, and I said, what's this FMF thing? And they're like, it's optional. Don't worry about it. And I'm like, cool. Well, I'm not worried about anything. I'm going to go in. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> it gets better. It gets better, let me tell you. And there's, I'll never forget this big, heavyset black senior chief. He walks in a room, and he goes, he goes, yeah, you don't want to be a nuke. But he didn't tell me about the $100,000 reenlistment bonus. He didn't tell me about E5 out of school. Yeah. He didn't tell me that the school was in Charleston, South Carolina. He didn't tell me any of these things. Yeah. He just said, hot young doctors and nurses, and FMF is optional. I didn't know what FMF was at the time. <laughs> and uh, I went to boot camp, <laughs> went to boot camp, and we went through battle stations. And uh, they, we got to this course where there was, uh, it was a war zone. And I was just like, what the hell is this? And they called all the Navy corpsmen out of my class, Division 443. And uh, they said, uh, all the corpsmen got to go through this, this litter course, um, and you've got to carry this. you got to carry 155 pounds of uh, sandbags. And I'm like, for what? Well, this is kind of like what FMF is. And I said, oh, that's optional. Um, and it is nothing. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, uh, yeah. And, uh, so I did the course, you know, we went through battle stations and we made it obviously graduated. And, uh, you know, I actually, I did, uh, try to try out for buds and, uh, did buds and doc at school and a boot camp. And they said, you know, you had to change your rate. And I said, no, 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 I'm going to hot young doctors and nurses, you know, and I would have to go in undesignated and I knew better than that. And <laughs> so I went in, I went to core school. Uh, walked over across the road to Great Mistakes, um, part two, and uh, sat in this this core school classroom, and in walks this chief and this HM2 FMF uh, recon marine corpsman guy. I was just like, who the hell is this dude? He's got ribbons for days. And this chief sitting there, and he goes, you know, the average lifespan of a Navy corpsman to combat is 30 seconds after the first shot is fired. 99% of the males in this class will go to Fleet Marine Force. Who wants to leave? I'm like, there's 70 dudes, there's 70 of us in this classroom. I'm like, what did he just say? I raised my hand. He goes, you want to leave? And I said, no, I, I heard it was optional. He goes, I just gave you your option. Oh, wow. So uh, from that point on, I just accepted the fact that um, – I was going to be in Philippe Marine Force uh, <laughs> training, and uh, but you know I, I realized how tough that school was because we only graduated with 22 Navy corpsmen out of my class, um, so we dropped that many um, people who were trying to strike as corpsmen. Um, and when I say it's a very selective piece, it's super selective, and there's no room for error. And uh, what they drill into you in six months is absolutely amazing. Um, and just the pride you have from being a Navy corpsman. I mean, of course, you get called pecker checker and all these other things, but um, 
the amount of knowledge that it takes to be a corpsman is just uh, unrelenting. And, you know, the, the, the fun part of this whole piece is that I still had not even made it to FMF training yet. <laughs> and uh, they don't tell you um, that you're going back to boot camp, actually. It's kind of like all these surprises um, because you have to now learn how to walk, talk, and dress like a Marine. And, uh, yeah, that was an interesting additional eight weeks of my life, let me tell you. Um, <laughs> uh, day one, I showed up, and I'm like, oh, we're all bunked out having a good time. Come flying in the trash cans. Come in the screams. And I'm like, what the hell just happened? <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I, uh, I I fell in love with it. Really? I fell in love with it because, I, yeah, because I, I realized that I was a part of something that there was only 30 other guys. Um, well, I think it was class of 50, and we graduated with 30 that made it. And it's like you're so obsolete. Um, I fell in love with this. Just uh, I was, I was, I was moto. I was like a moto doc. I was just like this gung ho, like learn everything, be the, you know, be an operator, um, do the best I can. Um, uh, and figured out that I wanted to be a recon corpsman. I wanted to go into recon and, um, and I took a billet to go train because I had injured myself. Good job, Brian, um, at the end of uh, fleet Marine force training and, uh, actually broke my big toe. Go figure. Um, walking or doing the last hump we did, um, finished the hump, graduated, um, and then took a, took a billet, um, for like nine months to heal and, uh, to get ready to go try for recon. And then this little thing called 9-11 happened. And, uh, <laughs> and I'm sitting in a chair and, uh, I phone rings and it says, pack your gear. You're going to, you're going to division. And I said, well, I guess that recon's gone. So I uh, ended up going to uh, AJ Squared Away, ended up in 2nd Line Reconnaissance Battalion um, in 2000. I uh, wanted to do that way. Yeah, with 2001, should I say. And uh, reported in. And, wow, it was just after that, it was, it was a different world. Um, you're no longer, I mean, you talk about having to earn your keep. I mean, the world, you think the world's dirty? Marines don't accept anybody typically when it's not, uh, somebody's walked across that parade deck with them. And, uh, and that's where, you know, you really start to realize, like, you know, who you can become and what it means. You know, there's a saying in the Marine Corps, you know, the few and the proud. Um, now I really think that really applies more to Navy Corpsmen because we are so few. Um, and the pride it, it is in being a Navy Corpsman is just, it's just a different level. So when we were talking at the beginning, you mentioned kind of your family way was the 20 years. Um, doing the math, it didn't seem like you ended up doing that. What what led you to decide to separate, and 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 how did that transition and other things that happened lead you to do what you're doing now? Well, you know, when I was in, you know, I'm – I'm not, I'm not going to lie to you. You know, I knew when I signed up that, you know, war was inevitable at any point in time in my life. Um, but I never thought, um, I would be going to war and my younger brother being fighting right next to me. Um, my younger brother joined the Marine Corps, um, right after 9-11. And, uh, we signed the Sullivan Act to go into Iraq together. Um, so we actually did the invasion together in 2003. Um, and I knew something was up and I knew we were actually going to war other than, you know, obviously being in Kuwait was kind of like a big giveaway. Something was going on. But uh, about seven days prior to going into Iraq, 
they got all the brothers from all the units and they brought us all to one base and they said, you know, I always just want you guys to see each other and hang out. And I'm like, look, I'm not that stupid. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you, you, you know that, uh, the trigger is about to be pulled. And, um, matter of fact, we weren't allowed to call home at that time, um, and talk to anybody for that last seven days, uh, because it was, you know, everybody would become skeptic. And, uh, you know, when I went to Iraq, you know, three, um, that was life changing. Um, I might talk about your eyes wide open. Um, wow. I mean, war, war is atrocious. Um, and as a Navy corpsman, it, it's extremely atrocious. And it's one of those things that, um, you know, when I tell people ask me how it was, it, and I said, you know, yeah, I said, movie, movies don't tell half the truth. And I said, because it's, it's something that in a movie I could turn off and a movie I can, uh, not watch again. I said, when you've, you've lived the movie, you don't turn off the movie. And it's something that, uh, you know, when I, when I think back and I look at serving amongst I, all these, these, these heroes that I served with, um, it was just, uh, life changing. And I can imagine, you know, what my brother was going through at the time. And, uh, you know, we both got back, you know, 10 fingers, 10 toes, thank God. And uh, both went back a second time. Brother went back in 04, and then I went back in 05 and did the Anbar province um, piece. And uh, both of us got out in 05. And uh, the thing it is is that we weren't ready for the war, uh, the real war ahead, and that is coming back to civilian society. And can you maybe talk a little bit about what that was like? Yeah, well, you know, it, there's um, <clears throat> there's such a, um, you know, there's such a, um, I, I call it kind of a, there's a, a glow about becoming a civilian again, um, but there's a little dark piece at the very end of the glow, and you don't actually realize, but that's the end of the tunnel, um, and the thing it is, is you're getting out and you're transitioning, you're like, oh, the life grass is greener on the other side, and that's all this glow, and but you don't know that that tunnel what's in that tunnel because it's black um and i've noticed for a lot of you know, veterans of my you know who've served and you know, especially enlisted um are not set up as they think they are um for civilian life um i sure hell was not um you know 23 different jobs later um and i'm talking about trying to even qualify for um, medical jobs um the only medical job i could get you know per, post-service was a phlebotomist and a medical billing specialist, and I was an operational OEMS graduate doing live tissue schools and had been to combat twice and had probably more trauma training than any doctor who is sitting in any ER across the United States, um, but was not allowed to come in and work because I was a risk. Um, and that's a, and that was a scary piece. I didn't know that everything I had worked so hard to be um, was just – pushed to the wayside and not accepted. And um, it was a very kind of uh, bittersweet you know, transition. And that transition uh, left me homeless, that uh, it left me kind of in a, in a survivor state of mood of, uh, you know, how to live, uh, how to, when am I going to eat? And I had to be very smart about how I, how I got things done. Um, ended up becoming a personal trainer um, so I could have a gym, so I could work out, so I could take a shower um, keep myself mentally composed, um, was living in my car part-time, was living in mat- um, you know people's extra mattresses and spare bedrooms, couches, garages, um, lanai's, 
um, and then end up getting a job as a bouncer, but then being a bouncer with PTSD um, uh, and not knowing that what PTSD or PTS is and that how alcohol changes, induces things. And um, yeah, that, that got me in a little bit of trouble and uh, it made me kind of, uh, what, what am I doing with myself? And uh, literally was a voice that came out of nowhere and it said, you know, uh, son, you better get your life together because no one else will for you. And it was something that my grandfather had said something of that nature to me. And I don't know if it was where this voice came from or what it was, but it was something deeper that I couldn't even begin to fathom. Um, and that next day I decided that, you know, I'm going to go back to something I love and I'm going to go back to food. And uh, even all my post pre-service, I was a, a prep cook and I was, you know, cutting vegetables and growing food and farming and hunting, like I said. And it was just all these things that meant something to me because it took me back to some place so so much more um, purposeful than where I was in my life. And I not only was I suffering, but my younger brother was also a professional couch surfer at the time. You know, he he uh, had literally lived every place in the West Coast that you could live. I mean, he was good. And uh, he had bounced around from every major city, from Las Vegas to Reno to um, you name it. Um, and he was out in 29 Palms. You know, he finally made it back east side. And, uh, you know, as I'm starting to kind of figure myself out, um, he still was in this uh, this rut of not being able to kind of reacclimate. Um, found alcohol as his only sombering uh, partner in life, and which is not somebody who you want to hang out with on a regular basis. And uh, he, uh, you know, was kind of just spinning his, his wheels. Greatest person in the world was able to do anything that you asked him to, but you get him alcohol. And it was like, here's, you know, here's Mr. Hyde. And sometimes you could even tell that he had been drinking. He was so intoxicated. Um, but I hadn't seen that because I was that too. And I knew how scary that person was because I knew where that mind was because I knew where my mind was. And uh, it was this piece that as I started kind of developing myself and finding a little bit of passionate outlet through food, um, I still, still saw him kind of stuttering um, and still kind of making um, these, I guess, you know, these mistakes that, you know, I was I had made and I was trying to help him find a pathway. And, uh, you know, we all, you know, been very blessed. I, you know, had since got a culinary degree, gotten a bachelor's degree um, and, you know, was doing some great things and you know, moved up the chain in the culinary world. Very good at it, working underneath a master chef and ended up getting into the private chef world. Um, and uh, I forever was given a call um, that truly gave me a, a different perspective of life. Um, and it was, you know, Memorial Day weekend in 2014. Um, I got a call from my father saying my brother had taken his life. And uh, I had, I can't put into words, um, even even feeling as a, a Navy corpsman losing a, mar a Marine brother or someone who has served a battle buddy, but uh, losing somebody who is my blood um, and not knowing what I could have done or could I have done anything or what what to do with all this. Um, he was uh, my confidant, um, and we had spent every Memorial Day weekend together, 
And in this particular Memorial Day weekend, I got booked a, a private party um, that was a pretty big party. And I told him I could come up the next day. And uh, he had it in his heart that his time was done. I, I can't even imagine what what that's like. Um, I really, I, I I don't know what to say when when you know I hear a story like this. Uh, I guess the only thing I can ask you here then is what what corner did you turn it, after having to deal with this? I you know I I was I was angry. Um, I was angry. I was so angry. Um, and I didn't realize, uh, how angry I was. I, it was actually a pretty scary piece. Um, I got to go, um, I was, I was suicidal myself. Um, I thought I had, uh, failed him. I thought I had failed my family. Um, I thought I, I, what my purpose was in life before the military was to be my brother's keeper. And when he became a brother on another level through service, it was I failed that level. Um, I literally felt like a failure um, because my sole job as a big brother in life was to make sure that he lived um, and that he was taken care of. Um, and I didn't know what to do. And I was so fortunate that this an organization popped into my world called Focus um, out of St. Louis and uh, it was about bringing wounded veteran, wounded combat veterans back together um, to find uh, kind of a buddy system to find out they're not alone in this world. I'll never forget the question I was asked on day one. Um, there was a gentleman, there was a Marine Corps veteran named Greg Muffler, um, had said to me, he goes, what are you going to do with the gift of your brother's death? Oh. And I said, and I looked at him and I'm just, I'm looking at him with this utter disconnection of what the hell did you just say to me? And what gives you the right to say this to me? And like, you don't know, you know what this feels like. I was saying, thinking all these things. And, um, and I found that he's, he, this guy is supposed to be my mentor for this whole week of, uh, you know, kind of finding some confidence and, you know, building a piece of where I can grow. Um, and then I found out that his son committed suicide, Marine Corps veteran, six months earlier. Hmm. And uh, I realized that there is a there is a gift in any any and everything that we're given in life. Um, we have to work really hard sometimes to to see those gifts and accept those gifts. And I realized that at that time that you know what I had allowed to save me. And what had chosen me at eight years old, which is food, um, had saved my life. And that I knew that if it had saved my life, there is probably something in it to save others. And that the chef was born. And and that is really what led you to do what you're doing now with with Vets to yeah. Success. Can you can you explain to us exactly what that program is and how it helps people? So, you know, Vet to Success is a, a model of multiple programs of uh, Vet to Chef, which was our original program, um, Vet to Baker, Vet to Brew, and uh, a new one, Vet to Agro. And what this is, it's really about finding food and brew and using food as an identity um, path, pathway in order to find a little bit of purpose, a little bit of connection, and to have a new service. 
we teach this organ, we teach it through the organization of Vets of Success because of what it is, it's empowering to know to be, become successful. You are a veteran. You know, we are getting you to success. Now, what program you choose to find how you kind of really kind of affiliate yourself to grow through, um, is kind of a personal piece. You know, um, we, we just, you know, we have eight veterans starting the new vet to chef program next week. Um, and what they're going to go through is a resurrection of finding out who they are. Um, a lot of us, um, who get out post service are still resonating in the person who is in my shoes, uh, HM3 FMF Jacobs. Um, this guy who is powerful, respected, willed, um, not afraid of anything, and then gets out of the military and doesn't know who the hell he is because he's never been allowed to be Brian. So every one of these veterans who have come post-service um, have not been able to chance to take, a, take from their wheelhouse and respect their past but grow their future. Um, and the fact of you know, letting go of whatever private or first class or whatever they were and seeing Rob and Amanda and James and, you know, Mike's and, you know, and being able to build that person's confidence. Because, you know, I meet so many vets, they go, oh, oh I'm Shane. Oh, and they have all these things that they're not. And I said, well, tell me about you know, Petty Officer Rodriguez. Oh, man, I, when I did this and I did that. And I realized that the best years of their life were spent serving amongst those who found purpose in their existence. And I said, wow, you know, food does that for me. Working in the kitchens does that for me. Finding this system, this brigaded, organized team, attention to detail, um, multi-focused, multitasking, chaotic society fits me for some reason. Oh, it's called the military. But it's not. It's the kitchen service. It's the culinary service. And so we have basically started to create an, a new mission to serve, a new purpose to serve. And you go forth doing it with your brothers and sisters, small fire teams, just like the military, using the same resourceful training, understanding about it's about who you know by what you know, and going on new missions together and feeling the success from accomplishment again. And feeling that the guy to your left, right, front, back has your six and that you're going to be able to take any mission that comes at you and be able to solve it. And that's success has really started to model itself around this type of commitment of being more mindful impact and mindfulness uh, versus just teaching a culinary skill set. I mean, I can teach anybody to cook, but I'm not looking to teach you to cook. I'm looking to teach you to be successful and their development of who you are as a person. Yeah, and I, I think some of what you said there that kind of hits me is I, I, I know we have a lot of folks coming home right now that have been deployed into combat theaters, but I, I would I would bet that you have plenty of people you're helping that maybe that's not specifically what they're dealing with. When you mention like people not really having their own personal identity, not being Jack or Brian and being Sergeant Spierko or, or you know what have mm -hmm. you, um, I understand that, and I think part of what people maybe miss with that is most of our people that serve, especially people that go in the enlisted ranks, they go in right out of high school. They're 17, 18 years old. They haven't developed into who Jack or Brian or Carl or Tom mm -hmm. is going to be because nope. they're in that age, and they do their development. That, that time between about 18 yep. and 25, right? 
That that is when you yep. really develop as a man or a woman, and they do that development in the yep. military, surrounded by the other military members. And the people I've yep. seen that have struggled more with readjustment, it's not so much combat. It's guys that spent the majority of that period of their time deployed somewhere other than the United States. Doesn't matter where. Because exactly. because it then where. right, like if I go to Fort Bragg, right? Okay, well I'm off duty, I go to McDonald's, go to the mall. Go out with some girl that I met through a buddy who's a civilian. And I'm in this mm -hmm. civilian slash military world half in, half out. When I went to Panama, yeah. there was none of that. The people in that country don't speak English. I'm 18, 19 years old. I'm surrounded by fellow soldiers 24-7 in recreation, in mission, in everything. And then all of a sudden, boom, you're spit out. You're in your mid-20s. You don't really have a skill that anybody cares about. You thought they would. Kind of that's what you were saying earlier. And yeah. now, well, what do I do? And for me, like, I know this sounds retarded to some people, but the first time I went to a grocery store, instead of a PX, why, why don't these people even know how to stand in freaking line? Right? Like, yeah. like that. And, and I think why that... Is Why is this so unorganized? And yeah. Why, you know, why, why are you blocking like, the aisle? Why don't you back up and leave a space in line so people can get, like, you know, and you can't. And I imagine with cooking and, and kitchen work and things like that, there's a structure. And that probably yes. is so beneficial to people that miss that structure so they can have the structure and then also learn to live on the civilian side without it because you still have a place for it to be. And, again, I, I really kind of feel that it is the people that spend most of their time overseas whether it's combat or in my situation, we're building roads and schools in Honduras and the remote mountains and stuff like that. Like when you come out of that, and I think the other thing is like, so when our grandparents served in World War II, when they came home, they got on a ship for three months to get home, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And and our guys now, they're in the middle of the, the shit in one second, and then they're out processed in three days and by. And yep. I was. I was home November 5th and out of the core November 12th. Yeah. I mean, it was sign, your, sign back over and go back to Iraq with a different unit or, or get out. And after being in Iraq the second time and being, you know, basically playing dodgeball with IEDs, um, I definitely was not going to go for a third realm of that. Absolutely. So. I can understand that. But then... That exit is is difficult. It's horrible. <laughs> it's horrible. It's horrible. You know, it's funny is I we actually you know we as an organization have gone up and spoken to like the hundred first and um, these transitional teams and you know I brought up a you know, valid point of why aren't we training you know soldiers to be civilians and why aren't we taking you know at least half the time four weeks to out process them properly and let them see what the real world is like. Um, because I know if someone had showed me what the real world was like, I probably would have signed that piece of paper a little bit differently or at least thought about my next enlistment, about how can I grow my career in a different manner um, and not had made a split decision based upon where I was. Um, granted, I mean, I wouldn't change a thing now, um, but going if I went back and did it again, I probably would reconsider a few of my actions. Um, but it's one of those things that, you know, they basically told us that the mission of the military is to be combat effective. Um, yeah. and that is not an effective combat maneuver. And I said, well, I guess, you know, we're never going to really have a true solution for this then. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think one of the most, um, 
things that's etched in my memory that's a little thing, but it will never go away is, you know, the day they took my, my ID card from me, punched two holes in it, and threw the trash can. Yep. That was, oh, wait, was, no, I couldn't, was nuts. I, I couldn't exist without that, right? Like, yeah. I, would, I would get in trouble yeah. if I lost that. I need that. Yeah, that's my identity. That's my front left breast pocket at all times. <laughs> yeah, time. yeah, yeah, and now it's gone. It's got holes in it. It's in a trash can, and there's a bunch of them in there. We all just got thrown in the yeah. trash, you know. And I didn't, yeah. Yeah, I didn't even know it hit me that much. I kind of like little jerk and like yeah. But then I got on a bus and I went home. But what happened with me? I spent a couple months, actually, really about a month at home, and hanging out with my friends from high school and all, and going, I, I, I don't know what to do. And I ended up hiking from Pennsylvania to New Hampshire on the Appalachian Trail over several That's months awesome. to get my head. And then I came down here to yep. Texas and kind of found you know my way into a career and all. And what I said in the intro before this, Brian, was, but you know what? There were these little points of luck. And I know a man makes his own luck to a degree, but it's also a mm -hmm. thing. And I, you'd meet this person, and they knew somebody, and that got me an opportunity to meet somebody else, and that got me a job, and then that job got me a skill. And I think back and go, yeah, this is a great story about how everything worked out for me. But what if one of those mm -hmm. little pieces of luck just didn't happen to be there? Exactly. You could end up in a and totally I, different I place. I truly feel totally different world, totally different spectrum. And I, you know, I completely, I can talk about this forever about free will and faith and all these things. And these things are meant to happen. Um, you know, because I've had to look back at my life and go, you know, where I'm at now and look at it, everything has happened. And if I, all those things did not happen, um, I would not be where I'm at. And it seems to and me like what you're doing with your organization is trying to give people those little pieces, those little points where they can make that contact and then choose that path for themselves. Exactly. It, was, it goes even a little deeper than that. And so what we, we teach them is kind of like a recipe of life. Um, and what that is is for them to realize that the plated ingredients they've been dealt in life um, can be changed. Um, and they have choices of the ingredients they choose to work with. They have choices of the purveyors or the people they choose to work with. Um, and this will, you know, elevate their plate. It will elevate the way they're seen. It will elevate the way they're respected, you know, within their, their world. Um, and that's, you know, kind of how the recipe of life really starts to configure is into something that we teach through as, as simple as showing somebody a lemon. Um, and what we do is we show them a lemon, and I would show it, throw it up to you, show and I ask you, what do you see? And you would respond, you know, a lemon. And I would say to you, okay, well, look harder. And you would say, uh, a lemon <laughs> and a fruit. Uh, and I said, okay, now you're getting into somewhere. Okay, uh, uh, citrus. Okay, better. What else do you see? Um, finally, someone says something, you know, very cliche, lemonade. That's great. What else do you see? They're like, uh, well, what do you see? They ask. Somebody finally gets it. And I said, well, I see a garnish. I see a sauce. I see a risotto addition. I see a grimalata. I see a dessert. I see a sorbet. I see an olive oil and a you know, lemon ice cream. I see um, limoncello. <laughs> limoncello, exactly. And what the idea behind it is that um, not to look at for what it is, but what for it will become. And every veteran stands and looks in the mirror uh, for what they are at this point in their life and not what they're going to become. And so we show them what they're going to become. We give them the opportunity to see that, to become visionaries. 
and to start to be able to plan their lives because let's face it, we're in the military. Our lives were planned for us and we just showed up and went through the steps. Now we're just showing up and nobody's giving us the steps and we don't know how to, you know, properly educate ourselves to make the steps and take orders from ourselves because we didn't look at ourselves as NCOs or people in charge. There was always somebody above us and we're always waiting for for shit to tumble downhill and for us to be able to make it happen, being responsive versus being reactive instead of being progressive. And so we teach them this extreme ownership mindset of being progressive in your choices and become what you want to see. And for people that are out in in that situation themselves, what, what would you advise people to do when they're looking? How do they find a path to step into something like what you're doing? You know, you know, obviously mine came from a very traumatic part of my my life. Um, um, but that sometimes trauma creates opportunity. Um, not all not all passion outlets are going to come through rainbows, sunshine, and skittles. Um, they're going to come through a lot of hard knocks. Um, what I say is, do something that you find purpose in. Find your why. Um, and if you have your why, then you'll you'll everything else will make sense because there would be a reason behind the why that is just un un undyingly uh, addictive. Um, my why um, obviously is huge, but, um, you know, something I did not bring up is that my younger brother left a child behind, a son. Um, and uh, I, you know, I'm not going to lie. I wish I was a better uncle, um, but it's been very hard for me to speak to him um, because of uh, the guilt I have felt. Um, and I spoke to him uh, literally four days ago um, or on Thanksgiving for the first time since my brother passed. And um, I, uh, when you talk about being reinvigorated for a why and knowing that there's a there's still a it empowered me knowing that the life I lost, there's still a life that depends on me. And uh, it changed everything. I mean, it just re-empowers me to stay focused. Having a why will propel you in places and directions and the people that you never could even imagine. Hey, could you talk a little about maybe finding some purpose in, in the things that you love and, and maybe even sometimes like finding something you love that you didn't know? Like, so you chose to go with culinary path because it was part of something that was planted in you from a grandfather. I think much as what I do with, you know, agriculture and things like that was planted in me by a, a, a grandfather. But I imagine there's probably some of the vets that you get into this program that are like, well, it's, 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 it's an opportunity, but you know, it's not like I want to be a cook or I, I want to learn to, mm -hmm. to be a brewer or something. But yet I bet you some of them end up learning to love it. So maybe right. like one of the things I think I, I, I'm big on the whole follow your passion, but if you don't know what your passion is, Do something. And How maybe, do you find? Yeah, but do something, exactly. and maybe you will find it in, in a place you didn't expect. Right. You know, it's funny. So we just started a farm, actually, um, and it's a hydroponic farm. Um, and I'm telling you this story because it's you know we have uh, this veteran, um, and he's a uh, he's an amazing guy. Um, but and he's graduated vet to chef, and he flanders in the job. He does it, but it's not not everything he wants to be. Um, we started this farm. Um, And, uh, he's a, he's a, 
you know, a guy from living in kind of a ghetto area, um, kind of went back to some roots that he probably shouldn't have. Um, but the minute I bring him out to this farm, um, there's a farmer's hat on this kid. There's gloves on him. Um, he's, t- he's, uh, he, I mean, just, uh, a, a whole, a whole reason for existence. Um, and I, and I asked him, I said, you know, what's changed? And he goes, he goes, I feel like, he goes, I feel like this farm is depending on me to be successful. And I said, well, what do you mean? He said, uh, you know, all these plants we planted, I said, he goes, they all got to be taken care of. And he goes, I want, I feel like it's my job. I feel like they, they won't, they won't be successful unless I help them be successful. Um, and it was the littlest thing of, in a way he, you know, he planted himself, um, into that garden just as, as much as we planted every one of these plants. Um, and he found a sense of overwhelming pride and, uh, just purpose in seeing these things stride and seeing a life come from what he's put effort into. And I think when, you know, as we see people change, is why people go into nursing or these other practices of life, um, when they see a life change, they feel that reward. Um, and his reward was to see life grow from his work. Um, and that was a extremely powerful moment for me to see somebody who, who never, ever found the passion in farming to say, this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. You know, that's a good kind of, Link back to what I was asking about because so the cooking thing was a path for him. It gave him an opportunity. It really wasn't exactly. what he wanted. He didn't really know what he wanted, but because he took that step, it led him yep. to find what he wanted. And I, I think that's what so yep. many of our young people need. And I know we're talking about transitioning military people today, but I think so many of our young people are kind of lost like this as it is. They, especially these ones oh, who go to huge. college and they come out with a degree in, you know, bitterness studies or something. And, you know, then they expect the to get a job. Interdisciplinary something. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and they, they're going to get a job. But even the jobs they can get, they don't want because they want a job that changes the world. They want a job that has meaning. They want a job that has purpose. Purpose. Right. And a lot of purpose. times you just got to go do something. And yeah, in doing volunteer. something, you find your purpose. You just show up, you know, if you volunteer. And this is why we, you know, the farm is an open, you know, this is why we developed the farm because it is an open area for spouses and veterans and people who just care about veterans to come out and be a part of a community um, function uh, because we're about the community. The community has to come out and support us like we have to come out and support the community. Um, and, you know, we, we totally believe in this whole um, mindset of the military, you know, of camaraderie and support and doing this together um, and raising the flag together. But we don't do that unless we put ourselves out there. Or as I tell everybody, all our veterans that come out, I said, you know, you came out here, you had a good time, you found something about this that was for you. Now go get two more and bring two more out. Or if it's a, you know, someone who's just a spouse or someone who's just a civilian, I said, go find two vets. Go find and tell them what you saw. And I said, but don't, don't just invite them, bring them. Because that's the hard part. You know, we can tell everybody to we're blue in the face of what's going on here and you should do this, you should do that. No, scoop them up, pick them up in the car, say, hey, we're going to go hang out here today and hang out and have a good time. All right, cool. And then once you become kind of a more, um, I guess you can just enthralled with what's going on and you get it, you open yourself up to, to see the opportunities that are there in front of you. Cause those opportunities may not, like you said, be just from walking the Appalachian Trail, which is amazing, but meeting the people along that trail that were the most amazing part of that journey. 
um, because that's what's happening. Because we have all levels of people coming out to support the farm and support the organization. And it's about all the people we're meeting and all the opportunities coming from this. I mean, we're in talks to get food trucks donated to the organization right now. We have so many things. These are just people we've met. Um, we're talking housing now. We're talking, I mean, you name it, it's happening because it's about people who you've met who believe in doing the right thing and coming together for the right purpose. And then we're having people going, you know what? I've always wanted to help work with housing. Wow, there, there's a job opportunity now. And they're passionate about it. And they have purpose in it. I mean, it's that's how you find who you are going to be in this world, is putting yourself out there. And I think there's something to that in – I think the question that a lot of vets kind of ask themselves during this period is, Can I still find a new reason to serve? Yes. Yes. I, I, oh my goodness. We, we, one of the biggest things we say in Vets CS is we were, it's about finding a purpose to serve again. And, uh, you know, I didn't say, I haven't coined this yet, but, uh, um, you know, someone basically has told me that you are creating a new army, Brian. You are creating a new service, um, a post, a reason to serve again. Um, and I never thought about it that way. Um, but I also never thought I was going to run a nonprofit. I never thought I was going to be impacting lives like I am. And, you know, we're going with it in the mindset of if this is, you know, feels like a new service and people feel purpose in it, then this is what we're going to become. And, I mean, what are your thoughts on this model as a whole? I know that you started out with like one thing and you've kind of branched out to like three branches of that thing that's all similar but don't you think that this approach could work in many different industries and disciplines yeah you know it's funny is that we're not done um you know this is just happens to be the uh, hospitality industry um that we've taken a, a major uh, inroad and focus on um you know here's my two cents on trades um i don't think we should be paying for school for trades Um, I think that trades are what keeps this world, this country afloat, uh, building buildings and then keeping electricity on and flowing water and uh, running cars and food you eat. And these are trades. Um, and there's a lot of great work to be done in trades. And there's a lot of things to grow in trades. But what we're finding more and more is that our brothers and sisters uh, that are veterans are in these trades and they don't necessarily – have a sense of togetherness and they'll have a sense of fulfillment um, in what they're doing or purpose, should I say. Um, but when we start to group them back together and they feel this structure again and they feel like they belong again, this model can be applied to every service trade that's out there because what you're doing is you're kind of reinvigorating people to have confidence not only in who they are but what they're doing and what their purpose within doing it is. And uh, we we have you know models that are going to extend um, hopefully into all different genres of trades tradesmanship. I think that's needed not just to help transitioning vets or even young people that are a little bit aimless, but like our country because our country we've behaved stupidly and we've taught this latest generation of kids. That you don't have value unless you have, you know, the initials BA or something like that uh, after your name, mm -hmm. and you should have a white collar, you know, office job type situation. And the reality is, there's only so much room for people to do that, 
And a lot of people yep. that end up in that space that end up successful end up miserable anyway. It's not a guarantee yep. of being happy. In fact, in a lot of those situations, no. it's the most, it is the most pointless work in, in, in many yep. instances. You end up in a job that you just hope nobody figures out that you're not needed and you make it till your yep. retirement. Um, office space is yep. just a classic cult thing. You know, that's, yep. it yep. really is like that. And these traits and have <laughs> these traits have meaning and purpose. At the end of the day, you can look and say that building has power because we installed yeah. those electrical wires. Or I, you know, I came out of the communications world, so you know, there's there's 500 computers in that building that are interconnected on a network now where people can do their jobs because we designed. I did that. I exactly. did that. I had a part in that, and. We are now at a point where people are saying, well, you know, we need illegals or whatever, and we need immigrants because nobody wants to do these jobs. I don't think anybody even understands the jobs are available. They pay no. well. There's a career opportunity in them, and there's well, shortages no, and of people that can do this stuff. Even more, even more than career opportunities, entrepreneurial opportunities. Big time. Um, oh my goodness, you know, um, I mean, we're we're building out uh, our own restaurant concepts. Um, you know, and our, they are a, it's a veteran brew, brew pub, um, that, um, is going to be really re unique. Um, and it's going to be something that is going to change the face value of where veterans in the community gather. Um, and it's going to bridge these gaps finally and quit making us so ostracized, um, and treated as this, you know, special project within every community because, We're not. We're not a special project that should be in every community. We should be just be part of the community and add value to it. And through these, you know, different trades and opportunities, we add those values. Yeah, sure, it's great to be a financial investor or whatever, and those things are awesome. But I know so many people who are these things that rather be at my farm digging holes and putting plants in the ground, um, and pulling eggs from chickens and uh, helping clear out for the next piece than sitting with another client looking at another set of numbers um, that won't necessarily truly even benefit them. They don't know why they do what they do. And there's, because there's nothing tangible they can feel from that existence except for money. And then when you have X, Y, Z and money, you become X, Y, Z miserable. Hmm. And now you're like, I don't know what to do. Because well, I don't, yeah, because I don't you have get, any. You know, I, it's, it's, it's exactly where I was before I started doing this podcast. I had become very successful economically, hated what I was doing for a living anymore, and said, well, okay, then then what? Right? Okay, so now you have all the success you could have ever wanted, and you're miserable. So, gee, that, I, okay, well, what am I going to do, work for more success in the form of more numbers so that I can have more misery? Uh, no. And I think that people don't realize that that's that path that they're being led down by everybody should go to college. And we need some people to do some of these things. And there's, there's, I'm not, I'm not crapping on all of it. I'm just saying it ain't all no. that you've been told that it is. And if you're not right for it, then that's how you're going to feel in the end. Yeah. Well, you know, what it is is this, right? And I mean, it's, it's peer pressure, right? I mean, if you look at it, I mean, the way school systems are set up, they're set up to, to train you to do X, Y, Z. You're trained to write letterheads. You're trained to write, it takes someone's notes. You're trained to do someone's taxes. You're trained to do someone's numbers. You're trained to, um, <laughs> you're trained for all the, the job functionalities of the world. Um, but you're not, you're not trained to find out who you are. 
um, that's not something they care about. You know, when I went to college, um, it was funny. I got in a lot of uh, pissing matches with the admin department because um, I told them I wasn't going to follow their curriculum because that's not what I wanted to be. Um, <laughs> and they're like, well, that's what you're you're in that college. I said, I don't care what college I'm in. I said, you're not going to put a stipulation on who I want to be in this world because you think these are the courses that are going to define what I want to be. I said, why, why do you get that control over me? See, we're in high school and we're teenagers and we're going through the school systems. We don't have that, um, ability. Uh, and I tell people who, you know, especially veterans who go back to school who have no clue who they want to be, don't be anything. Take courses that interest you. And when you find that pure interest, stick with that pure interest. And then if it becomes a bigger interest, go volunteer and put yourself out there and see if it's something you like to do. And then if you figure out it's not, get the hell out of it. Don't don't waste your time on it. You only get one, two feet, two hands, one head, one you know a set of skin to work in for X amount of time and quit waste time. Yeah, we have a saying around here, you know, don't waste your dash. You know, that's when you die at yeah. some point, they're going to put your name on a stone or a plaque or something. Yeah. They're going to put two dates on it. And in the middle of those days, yep. there's going to be a dash, and that dash is you. And, and that dash yep. is expendable. It only lasts so long, you know, and it, it's yep. going to wear out. I think one of the things, like, when it comes to the entrepreneurial side, though, I don't think people that really want to build entrepreneurial enterprises, even if they're not military, especially if they're not military, understand the value of building it with a military core. And, and this will sound a little bit off at first until you think about it, but... I run these workshops at my, my property, and the one year we were doing it, we had like 70 people here, and things were getting a little bit out of hand with you know some stuff being left around in garbage and all. And I thought, you know what would be cool is to get all these people together. I got an Air Force Master Sergeant here, and I got a, a Marine Sergeant, and I got an Army Colonel. What if we got the, this whole group of people together and did a military police call to clean the place up just so they could experience yeah. it? And then I went, I'm not doing that because it would take me two freaking hours just to get them <laughs> rudimentarily trained enough to actually get into a formation, <laughs> to, to, to you know, to dress right, dress, to, to you know, to, to, to join ranks, etc., and actually do it the way it would be done in the military. Like they would not be capable, and that seems like a little thing. Well, okay, well you can pick up garbage. Yeah, anybody can pick up garbage. You're not because if you weren't there, you're not getting it. What I'm saying is, if I get a group of military people together, let's say we're going to run a tire shop, right? Like. I, I've always thought I was going to make a thing called E7 tires or something like that, where the manager was a, a staff sergeant or above or something, or first class or above. And uh, but let's throw that out. Just like if we just had a tire shop, you think of the way a tire shop's run and how many people are sitting there and they're miserable, they're not being taken care of or whatever. If you built a tire shop and you used them, and I don't care if they're from all you know all the branches, but just use that core training philosophy. This is your job. This is what you do. This is how long a person doesn't wait any longer than this. And if you have somebody working for you and they should have taken care, you get on them now and they go do that. You could build a tire shop franchise where people walked in there and were like, whoa, right. whoa, I get exactly what I'm supposed to get, exactly the way it's promised every single time. And that group won't let it be any other way because once right. they know these are the parameters, this is the time that we're judged on, this is the mission and it's a mission, not a task, then it's going to get done that way every single time. 
And if you want to be able to franchise something, or even if it's not a franchise, make it replicatable. Be able to say, I'm going to open another one in, in Jacksonville, another one in Atlanta, another one in Richmond. And you want to be able to do that. That's the systemization you need, and that's what military personnel yes. offer that, that I think is largely unrecognized by corporate America. And that's not being robotic, yeah. right? Because there's no. still the improvise, adapt, overcome. But there is, in the core, somebody walks through that door, somebody greets them within 30 seconds, period. Right? And, and that yeah. type of philosophy, and I think that's why restaurants work well. Well-run restaurants yeah. work that way. I walk in the door... Yeah. Be, I better be seeing a host, right? And I mean, yeah. if I'm not getting a table right away, I better be told how long it's going to be, and it better be about that long. And yeah. if there's room at the bar, yeah. I better get offered that. And, you know, once I sit down, so, it's, you know, all those things. And a kitchen has to run very, very military-like. Yeah. Well, you want me to tell you what you, you just hit on in all those pieces is that um, you're dealing with a group of, of uh, individuals that understand service. Mm. And uh, they understand what it means to serve because they've taken an oath and obligation to serve. Um, and this is what makes us so successful is because I'm letting them serve again. I'm letting them do what they already know how to do and that they're good at it. And I'm not taking it away and not saying it's not worth anything. And I'm not telling them they can't use it and they have to translate it in some weird civilian um, italicized language. No, I'm letting them serve. And that's why these men and women who come through this program are doing so well is because they're taking their service and using it. And kind of tell people, like, if they want if they want to help you better do what you're doing, is there a way that people can do that? You know, there's a couple of different ways. We actually just went through a major rebranding uh, process. Um, we've got an amazing organization that has picked us up for a year, um, and they rebranded us. They're redoing our websites. They're redoing. We had new PSAs, commercials, everything coming out um, because we are going to take this program nationally. Um, we are going to take the Vets Success model and open up in every major city across the United States. Um, that's the goal. And uh, to better help us and serve us um, is make a connection to your local, you know, VA reps, you know, talk to your VA, uh, your VSOs, say they need to look into the vet success model, um, what they're doing there in Sarasota, Florida. It's making sense. Um, also, donations, time. Um, and when I say time, you know, share our page on Facebook, uh, share our stuff on Instagram, invite your friends to like it, invite your veteran friends and brothers and sisters to like it. Um, because it's, you know, there's a wealth of knowledge and opportunity. And, you know, we, you know, we've been very blessed and people say we're, in, we're inspiring, you know. Um, so maybe there's a little something that somebody will get out of a post that we don't even mean for them to get. Or they get to watch a journey of a veteran's life change. And then they're inspired to go out and change a life. Um, there's just so much good that comes from watching good happen. Um, and to be a part of that, just build a part of I get emails and, you know, text all the time just about, Uh, I'm, it's been amazing to just to see the, what's happening uh, and see the growth of this. And you've got me that I'm going out to do this now. And this, those are the things. This is why you should be a part of something bigger than yourself, because that ultimately will change everything. Um, and that aspect comes from just being a part of something bigger. And that's what Vets Success is becoming. It's something bigger. Well, and go ahead. Yeah, and I'm just, you know, with that, you know, if you're in the local area of Sarasota, Florida, Tampa Bay, we're here. Um, and we are coming to Dallas, Fort Worth, Texas, uh, the San Antonio area. 
uh, Nashville, Tennessee, the Carolinas are our first stops for the organization for the new growth model. And, uh, so we're coming, um, and, you know, get excited because we're excited. I, I almost forgot this, but you were, you were telling me how, like, a lot of times you end up starting with guys at a point where they're, they're homeless. And you guys oh, yeah. do go through a process to make sure, because we do have some issues with, and I don't even like the term stolen val valor, uh, just of people course, that, yeah. that just, you know, they claim they were a vet. You guys make sure that these folks are, you know, legitimately what they say they are, and you kind of put them through. Mm -hmm. You don't just immediately take them and just drop them in the middle of a kitchen. Like, can you talk a little bit about how, if you decide this is a person that maybe you guys can help, how that, how that happens from that point until they enter the program? Sure. You know, what it is is what, why we're also successful is that we work with every major community partner that is out there already doing what they do great. I'm not coming in to steal any of your, your limelight, your grants, anything. No, we are the next level of support and growth for the veteran and their spouse to come through the programs. Um, we work with organizations that have vetted the veteran community um, and have certified the fact that this is a veteran um, by VA and by what state law, whatever else these pieces are, um, I guess, accompanied by whatever levels of, I don't know, there's always some grammatical statements saying what a veteran is in every state. But we, we've come to realize that, you know, let people do what they do best. I mean, the, the flag in Mount Siribachi was, wasn't raised by one Marine. You know, it was raised by several in the Navy corpsmen. And for that fact, that's why they were able to raise it. And we're not looking to raise that flag by ourselves. We're looking to be an integral part of that flag raising. So we let organizations like Goodwill, who have a veterans organization, um, vet the veterans. They do our case management for the veterans. Okay. Um, did I lose Resident you there? Heidi. Yeah, I lost you there for a second. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, sorry. Yeah, uh, but, but we let all these people, you know, go ahead. Go ahead. You, I, you just dropped for like 10 seconds. You were, I thought you were gone. Uh, I think we just had an audio yeah. Skype hiccup there. Continue. Yeah. Um, but uh, so we let the organizations do what they do best. Uh, we work with a, primarily a lot of second chance veterans. So veterans who may have some boo-boos post-service, we help them, you know, fix their boo-boos through vet court, get um, these felonies dropped, misdemeanors dropped, uh, discharge upgrades done. Um, there's a plethora of things that happen, but it's not just us doing it. Um, but it's giving, it's showing that all these organizations that this one veteran, um, in every case is different, of course, um, is making the purpose in their life to grow their life. And, and by showing up, like today, I said, we had eight veterans who said, you know, I want to be a part of this change. Um, and each one of them had a unique story and each one of them had unique circumstances, but at the end of it, they all wanted an opportunity. And so we work with all the prospective organizations that do housing because we believe that food, shelter, and clothing are the three basic needs of life. And you can't be educatable or trainable unless you have those things. And so we let those people who do those best do those best. And then we come in and provide you a sense of identity, stability, and progression in your life. Awesome, man. And, you know, I'm going to make sure that I have – Links to your website, all your social media stuff like that in the show notes today. Uh, and I appreciate you for the work that you're doing. And what I've been kind of amazed by in the past few years as I've started reaching out to different organizations like yours is how many there are. You were talking about working with other groups, and some of them are you know, vets groups and some of them aren't. But I would encourage anybody in this audience as a vet, and I know I've heard from a lot of them over the years that 
you know, they found this community and it's, it's been, you know, a, 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 a big help in putting their lives back together to understand how much is available today. What, what, what Brian is doing is awesome. And, but it's also, you know, they, they can do a lot, but they're still, they can't help everybody. But I, I think if you're a vet today, I think one of the things that Brian and I would both want you to understand is how much is available if you'll reach out for help and be willing to take it and look mm -hmm. for it. Because, you know, I've met organizations, their entire purpose is to link all the, there's so much that you can't find to find a veteran and say, okay, well, let's find programs for you. And when I got out in the early 90s, there was nothing. Right, there was a computer at the unemployment office you could use. That's now serious. That's yeah. that's what they're like. Yeah, you can go down to unemployment that's office crazy. and apply for uh, government jobs. They have a special computer in the bag just for you to use. And I went and there it was, and I, nobody wanted to hire me. It was you know, here. You're, oh, you're not 20 years and retired. No, we don't. You you can't be a forest stranger or something like that. You know. And there's so much available today. I think that people that are If, if, if what we were saying today hit you at any point emotionally and you're like, that's how I feel and I don't know what to do, get some help. Don't be part of the statistics for the negative. Be part yeah. of the new statistics we're trying to build for the positive. Yeah, you know, reach out. Bottom line, reach out. Get over get over the sense of pride. Get over the sense of I, I, I'm owed something um, and reach out. And I promise you the the minute you reach out, you're you're going to see the onslaught of support that's truly there. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well again, Brian, thank you for your service uh in the military and thank for your thank you even more, I would say, for your service uh now and the things that you're doing now. Thank you for being with us today on the show. Well awesome. No, thank you so much for having me. It's been an honor. I mean we um I mean we're just We're so blessed to be able to do what we do. I mean, it's, you know, we've had 40 vets come through. We're about to have another eight. Um, and we're just getting started on the brewing program, just getting started on the agriculture program. And we're only in Sarasota, you know, Bradenton, you know, Florida. Tampa's coming. Orlando's coming. Jacksonville's coming. I mean, we have a lot of work to do. And we're, you know, we're, we're the only organization in the United States doing what we do. So a uh, lot of, a lot of things that still to come. I'll tell you what I love hearing is something like, well, we've already put 40 people through, and we're just getting started. That We need more people with that attitude, man. Again, thank you for being with us today. Man, appreciate it. Thank you for the time, and thank you for your consideration, man. And uh, you know, look forward to you know, hearing more and learning more about all the other organizations. Well, great interview with a really great dude doing great work. Um, definitely an organization worth supporting uh, and a guy that I, I think that we are fortunate to have uh, serving our nation now uh, as a civilian after serving our nation uh, uh, in the military. With that, I want to remind you guys, if you want to support this show and the work that we do, one of the easiest ways you can do that is, and especially this time of year when you're going to be doing a lot of shopping anyway, do your online shopping through tspaz.com. Just go to tspaz.com. Check out all the reviews we do. Check out the deals of the day on Amazon, what have you. As long as you start there, you help support us in the work that we do. I have a product review for you today I think you'll really like. And it might be something you want for yourself. It might be something you want for someone in your life who you're looking to get a unique gift for. Gift for? Gift for. Uh, this is the Mason Tops Complete Mason Jar Fermentation Kit. This is not for making alcohol. It's not for making mead and wine and stuff like that. This is for making fermented foods sauerkraut, pickles, etc. 
Uh, it's a pretty innovative little kit. It has a really cool wooden packer to pack your stuff down, especially your krauts. That's really what that's for. Uh, and then it's got these really cool, they call them pebbles. They're basically little glass weights. They fit down in the mouth of your mason jar. And you can get them in wide mouth or narrow mouth. I much prefer wide mouth jars specifically for fermenting. Uh, so that helps keep everything under the brine. And in fermentation of food, they say if you keep it under the brine, everything will be fine. And they're right. And then they have these things called pickle tops um, or, and, or pickle pipes. And basically, it is a silicon uh, top that has a one-way valve. Air can get out, but air can't get in. It kind of looks like a squared-off baby bottle nipple, but it's designed, again, so air pressure will allow the air to come out, but it won't allow air to come in. And they fit right on the top of a mason jar. Again, you can get either a wide or, or, or narrow mouth jar. And then you just put a ring around it, holds them on there. You can get that whole kit. I have a link to that. I own this kit. I use this kit. I like this kit. Uh, there's a video of me showing some of my ferments with the kit in the review. But let's say you're like, you know, I don't really need that wooden packer. You can get the pebbles and the packer, or you can get just the tops, or you, I mean, you can get pretty much whatever parts of it you want as well. You'll find it all in my review. Uh, again, you can find the reviews at tspaz.com, tspaz.com, and they're all alphabetical. But to find the most recent ones, when you go to tspaz.com, uh, you'll see a link right at the top that says to see Amazon's deals of the day. You can go over to Amazon from there and just shop for anything you're looking for. But you also see the next line, it'll say to see the current item of the day and all our past reviews. Click here. You click that, it'll bring up a list of the most 10 recent reviews. That's how you use T-SPAS, guys. So check it out. It's easy to do. And as long as you're doing it, you help support the Survival Podcast and the work that we do. That brings us to our song of the day. The song of the day today, again, we're, uh, we're still listening to... Uh, Lucas Stragnoli, who is just, I mean, this guy is blowing my mind as I'm going through this week. In fact, it's not the song we're going to play today, but when I was listening to today's song, uh, over in the suggested videos, his, his rendition of Sweet Child of Mine by Guns N' Roses came up. I shared that on Facebook today and said this is pure talent and pure art. And if you know you're a guy that, you know, or a gal that doesn't really care for music like Guns N' Roses, I guarantee you, you'll love that cover of it. Uh, this guy plays acoustic guitar and plays multiples at the same time and does all kinds of cool stuff. What he's doing today, he's got a guitar, you know, flat in front of him, and a guitar he's playing like a normal guitar as much as this guy plays the normal guitar. And he's playing them both at the same time. He's got some percussion in it like he always does, a little bit of harmonica. And at one point in this, he picks up a freaking violin bow, and he's playing a freaking guitar with a violin bow. This is one of these guys, do you, what instrument do you play? And his answer is yes. I mean, this, this guy is amazing. But the song today is is equally amazing, I think, in, in what he's trying to convey with it. It's called Bittersweet Symphony. And he said this song is dedicated to all the people that feel like nobody hears them. I think that fits well with some of the things that we talked about with our vets in today's show. And the video for this song, he sets up without amplification. And he plays this song in the middle of a crowd. It looks like it's Oktoberfest in Germany. So there's just people filing by on all sides. And nobody really stops and pays attention. 
And he did that to make a point that when lots of chaos is going on, even when you're doing something really awesome, sometimes nobody seems to care. And he said he learned when he did this video that just because no one's paying attention doesn't mean you should do anything than give less than give your best. I'd like to extend that a little bit. And again, I think it fits well with what we talked about today. It's true that you can do your best and be amazing at something and no one will pay attention. But it's also true that if you keep doing it long enough, somebody will pay attention. And once one person pays attention, it doesn't take long before it's two. And then it's not long before it's four. And then it's not long before it's eight and 16 and so on. If you're truly great at what you do, and you truly do it for the sake of doing it alone. And you dedicate yourself to that. And in that action, you're also trying to do something for others. Sooner or later, that abyss of billions of people and none of them paying attention to you won't matter. Because while we might live in a world where 99.9% .9 of the people will never pay attention to you, one-tenth of one percent is still... Tons and tons of people that you can influence, that can interact with you, that you can make a difference for. I think that fits very well with today's show. I think it's funny how so often the songs that John Adams selects for us do fit the theme of the show. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't.